0: Well, good afternoon and welcome. This is Bill Allen from West Irwin Church of Christ in a very chilly downtown Tyler, Texas. Hope you are doing well and somewhere safe and warm during this winter uh, in middle to the end of December, December 20th. We're expecting a very cold next few days here in Northeast Texas. Um, but today we're very warm because we're inside in the heat and that's nice uh, but we're also in a few wonderful, wonderful books. If you've been keeping up with the Daily Bible, then you're nearly there. We have uh, 11 days left in the year, 11 days left in our readings, and, uh, and it is uh, moving very fast, as you have seen over the last several days, and we're going to be ending up with a long study from the book of Hebrews, and then ultimately uh, the book of Revelation, so that's all coming up ahead uh, in this week and next, uh, but I do want today to go through what is called the Pastoral Epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and also the book of James. Uh, James is the half-brother of the Lord, uh, Lord Jesus. There are two books in the New Testament that are attributed to his half-brothers. This is children born after Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary in the natural way. And uh, we've looked at some passages in Scripture that relate to that in the Gospels. Um, But James writes a very practical book, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want us to close the book, as it were, on the Apostle Paul. We've watched him be converted in Acts chapter 9. We've seen him uh, become a leader in the church, a missionary, um, a, a writer of New Testament uh, epistles, and he is uh, going to be writing the last three books that we have uh, near his death, it seems, as he writes to his sons in the gospel, first to Timothy and then to Titus, and then a second letter that we have uh, to, uh, to Timothy. Uh, so let's get to it, shall we? Uh, first and Second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles because there is much in there about pastoring, about shepherding, about ministering. Yes, I understand that elders are referred to in the New Testament as the pastors or shepherds of the church. And I think it's good for us to call our elders shepherds. They're also called overseers or bishops. But we also know that there are other members of the congregation, including ministers who uh, do shepherding and find themselves in shepherding roles. Uh, when Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, he has left them, uh, Timothy and Ephesus, Titus on the island of Crete, uh, to minister to those churches and to shepherd them in ways that he describes in these letters. And part of that for both is to... Uh, appoint men to serve as elders or official shepherds of the church. So I think that's very, very interesting, and he has much to say about about all of that. So let's get to it, shall we? It's going to be very hard not to read all of these because they're so good. First and Second Timothy and Titus are so good, um, but I'll, I'll be brave. Uh, several times there is a phrase that comes up, trustworthy sayings. Here's a trustworthy saying. He says, literally, faithful is the word. And then he goes on to describe that, and we see that in this first reading uh, that's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 12. It's a, a little bit of an uh, 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 autobiographical sketch from Paul. We've seen that in Philippians 3 and uh, in other places as well. This is certainly a powerful, powerful passage 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, uh, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, Paul writes, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying, verse 15, faithful is the word that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. In the traditional King James or authorized version, it is, I am the chief of sinners, Paul writes. Verse 16, But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an, as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That last verse is what we call a doxology. A, a praise or glory word from those two words. And sometimes Paul just has to has to open up with one, and, and this is one of those times. As he thinks back on his life before Christ as a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church and a violent man, uh, we remember that he was there when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed, approving of what was going on. Uh, but when Jesus confronted him and then Ananias baptized him, he hit the ground running, and had never stopped. And, uh, and he says, look, if God can save me, God can save anybody. And that's why I'm here. It's a great, great statement. The worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, uh, that became a very, very important leader in the first century church, and his words still resonate with us uh, today. We continue on in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Uh, he sounds much like what we read in in uh, Romans chapter 13, talking about the civil authorities. What should we do about him? Well, he tells Timothy, pray. Pray about them. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. What an important prayer that is for us today as well just as it was in the first century with for the roman empire uh, by this little band of christians that continued to serve no matter what verse 3 he tells us why this is good and pleases god our savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth for there is one god and one mediator between god and mankind the man christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Paul says the reason we pray for peace is not just for our own safety, but primarily for the gospel to be spread. Why is that, Paul? Because God wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator, he says, between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Not a popular statement in today's world, and it wasn't a popular statement in first century Ephesus either. And yet, Paul writes to Timothy there, and he says, this is what you need to tell them. This is what you need to do. You need to pray for those leaders, whether they're for you or against you, whether they were your guy or not. Um, You pray for them, and you pray for peace. Just as the Babylonian exiles uh, in the time of Jeremiah were told by the great prophet, look, Settle down there, buy property, uh, pray for the good of the city where you are, because that's what's good for you too. And that's what Paul writes to Timothy, but he says it with a purpose so that we might be able to better carry out the Lord's call and mission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone, because there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. What a great, great statement in First Timothy chapter 2. Well, we go on and we turn to chapter 3, and uh, Paul begins to get down to business in a very serious way and talks about elders, shepherds, and he encourages Timothy to look for men of character, men who are spiritual, uh, not just characteristics, and we talk about those sometimes, but men of character, men who are good men, who have a good reputation, who are knowledgeable in the word, and who are seen as leaders in the church. Uh, Those are the kinds of men who have faithful wives and faithful children. Uh, This is such an important passage in those first several verses of chapter 3, as you think about the life of a church. And then he speaks about their wives, and then he speaks about deacons. And we see from Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul wrote while in jail. We saw that last week. Uh, he uh, addresses the church and the elders and deacons. And so very early on, we see that structure in the church, that there are shepherds or elders or bishops or overseers, all those terms, and deacons, servants, people who have a specific role to carry out the work of the Lord. Uh, Paul writes, it's continuing on in chapter 2 or, or chapter 3, uh, we skip down to verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, and there's a sense of urgency in these works, especially in 2 Timothy, although I hope to come to you soon, 1 Timothy 3.14, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. What a great description of the church, the pillar and ground or foundation of the church, uh, uh, of the truth. That's what the church is supposed to be. And that's what we are called to be, God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And then another doxology. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. A great passage for us to remember as we remember the Christmas story coming up in a special way this weekend. Uh, That great statement, just those few verses talking about the work of Jesus Christ. And then notice 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And you say, oh, we must be in the later times, the last days, because we see that everywhere. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 2, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You've heard that, that term before, that statement, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Uh, What a horrible description. Verse 3, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. It's a great, great statement, Uh, not just about the future times, such as we're living in today, but about the times and the world that Timothy was living in. Paul is writing these things because everyone around him was was doing that. And Paul counseled Timothy about how to handle that and how to go forward from there. Uh, chapter 4, skipping down to verses 11 and 12. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Uh, Paul directs Timothy to uh, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And we've heard that Scripture before. If you've been in Churches of Christ or most any other Christian faith, likely, and you were in the youth group days, then First Timothy chapter 4 Uh, verse 12 is one that you had probably heard many times. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're of your age, but be an example. Uh, Be an an example. It's a great, great statement. And then in chapter 4, verse 16, the last verse of that chapter, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's what Paul wanted Timothy to devote himself to doing, his life actually doing the will of God and his doctrine, uh, what he believed and taught, and then his life of practice. And Paul says, "Look, if you'll commit yourself and devote yourself to those things, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And that's why we're here. Uh, We look at chapter 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 6 is a chapter that's really devoted to being content and really, like Philippians 4, and really devoted to um, having our treasures in heaven and not necessarily on earth. In chapter six, verse six, godliness with contentment is great gain. Verses nine and 10, uh, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction and we think of Jesus talking about the different types of soils in one of his parables and how that that uh, seed that's thrown among the thorns represents those who are are falling into this trap that he just talked about and then verse 10 of 1 Timothy 6 for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil not money itself money is neither good nor bad can be used for good purposes or bad we had a wonderful, special end-of-the-year contribution at our West Erwin Church this past week, and um, we we realize we are excited about all the wonderful things that will be done with the gifts that people gave uh, for the sake of the glory of God and the mission of Christ. Um, it's because they have money to give, but they don't love that money so much that they hold on to it with a tight fist, because the love of money, Paul says, is a root of all kinds of evil, but rather they have the attitude that he tells Timothy to tell the people of his city to have. In verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's the attitude we should have towards our money and towards all material things. Well, let's keep rolling in Second Timothy chapter 1. Uh, well, let's hold off on Second Timothy. Let's look at Titus first. Skip a few pages up. Uh, we'll read a few verses, a few passages from Titus. Uh, Because Timothy uh, has been left in Ephesus, Titus has been left on the island of Crete. Um, And so Paul addresses him in verse 4 of Titus 1 as my true son in our common faith, just like he does uh, Timothy. It's a great, great statement. And then he tells him why he's there. Verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then in the verses that follow, just like in 1 Timothy 3, he gives him some instructions about the kind and character of men that would be called to serve as elders in the church. Uh, Look ahead to chapter 2, this great passage in Titus 2, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, what a great and wonderful statement. And this teaches us to say no to the ungodly passions that we see all around us and to say yes to watching our life and doctrine closely as Paul wrote uh, to Timothy. We are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, What a great, great statement. And then one more passage from Titus in chapter 3, starting in verse 3. This passage is very similar to Ephesians 2 that talks about how we're saved by grace through the response of faith, of uh, Colossians chapter 2 and, and Romans chapter 6, and this chapter, this chapter 3 of Titus, starting in verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. In the words of Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins. But, just like in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, but something happened, something changed, God acted. Titus 3, verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. I believe that when he says... That he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That washing he's talking about is baptism. Just like he told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be, Jesus said, you must be born of water and the Spirit. You must be born again of water and the Spirit. Here he says, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done. No, no work is seen in to deserve salvation, whether it's believing or repenting or confessing or being baptized. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The way Ephesians 2 puts it, we are saved by grace through faith. And he's describing that response of faith here. And he includes Christian baptism in that as well. But what then? Well, the way Romans 6 says it, should we continue in sin so that grace might increase, this great grace that has saved us? And then he says, absolutely not. And this is the way uh, Titus is told in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, very similar to Ephesians 2, verse 10. This is a trustworthy saying, verse 8, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. No, those good things that we're devoted to doing don't save us, but they're the product of our salvation. We are raised to live a new life, Romans 6 says. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, Ephesians 2 verse 10 says. And here we are to be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good. That's the life of That's what the life in Christ should look like. Well, the last book that we have apparently just before his death uh, that Paul writes probably while in Roman prison waiting uh, for his trial and execution, uh, Titus in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, we read uh, these words uh, starting in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. With a clear conscience, as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers, talking to Timothy. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Uh, That great heritage of faith that Timothy had, his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, and now him. His mother, who was a Christian woman and a Jew, who was married to a non-Jew and an unbeliever, and yet uh, became a Christian and had her son baptized. And then Paul had him circumcised when he took him on what we know as Paul's second mission journey. That's this guy right here. I have to do a shout out to my buddy, old crazy Kevin Finley in Arlington because he's the one that helped me to, I told him one time, I can never remember which one is his grandmother and which one is his his mother. I know their names are Lois and Eunice, but I always get them mixed up. He said, well, Bill, just remember Let, L-E-T, Lois, the grandmother, Eunice, the mother, and Timothy. Love it. Thank you, Kevin. Well done, brother. Well done, or as my children call him, Crazy Finley. Love that guy. Uh, love that guy so much. Well, we continue reading in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. That's the spirit we have given. Not one of timidity, as some versions say. Not one that makes us timid or shy, but power. One that we find the love and self-discipline um, that we carry out for uh, the Lord. We continue reading in Second Timothy and skip over uh, to Chapter Two, beginning at verse one. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. You see, that's God's plan, isn't it? His plan was not for the gospel to stop with you or with me once we responded but rather for us to take the word of God and to entrust it to others, faithful ones who will be able to carry on this mission long after we are gone, just as Paul did with Tim- Timothy and with Titus, and I'm sure with so many others uh, as well. Uh, we skip down a little bit in uh, chapter 2. Uh, we continue on reading, uh, starting in verse 8, first uh, Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember, Second uh, 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's concerned that those people who are saved will lose that salvation. And yes, that is possible. And I think that's why the New Testament is written. And that's why Paul was so adamant to these young preachers, young ministers, Timothy and Titus. Verse 11, here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, He will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Great passage of scripture from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, We continue reading and go on. And uh, let's go to chapter 3, uh, because this is such a, a very significant passage. In 2 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 14, he reminds Timothy once again of what he grew up hearing. 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. His grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, and his uh, friend and mentor and father in the gospel, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Verse 15, And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed or inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He's talking about this right here. He's talking about the Bible. The Word of God is inspired. It's God-breathed. It's the only place that we can find that objective Word and will of God. And so we turn to those scriptures and we look to those scriptures. And as he told uh, Timothy earlier, we guard our life and doctrine and watch it closely so that with the scriptures, the servant of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, We only go to the inspired and authoritative word of God for that. And so that brings him to this charge in 2 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing in His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now notice 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, healthy teaching. We see that term several times in these epistles. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Again, a horrible description of those who don't want to hear the truth. They just want men and women around them who will say what their itching ears want to hear and not the truth. Verse 4, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, this is all going on in Timothy's day just like it is today. But you, verse 5, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. It's a great, great statement as he calls on Timothy to preach the word. And then we see the urgency again later on in 2 Timothy 4, verse 9. Do your best to come to me quickly. Uh, He tells Timothy, come before winter. Do your best to get here before winter, verse 21 says. Paul knew that he wasn't long for this earth. Unlike Philippians 1, when he's riding from jail in one of those prison epistles, and he really thinks that he's going to be freed because he feels like God's not done with him yet, that's not his feeling here in 2 Timothy. Come before winter. Do your best to come to me Quickly, only Luke is with me," he says in verse eleven. That great Doctor Luke, his companion on his mission journeys as well. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. This is the John Mark that Paul didn't want to go with him on that uh, third, on that second mission journey because he had deserted them and run home to Mama in Jerusalem. And Barnabas wanted to take them, take him, and so they parted company. But we see, just like. Uh, with Barnabas Paul is uh, wanting Mark to continue uh, to serve the Lord and and felt very highly of him Uh, when you come verse 13 bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls especially the parchments bring my books bring my books bring the scrolls bring the parchments bring bring the word he writes to Timothy what a great great statement um, and so I want us to look down at verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. But before we get rid of this passage, of this these pastoral epistles, some of the last words of the Apostle Paul are words that we say at many memorial services for faithful people Listen to what Paul writes himself in 2 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 6, very likely shortly before he was put to death, beheaded by Emperor Nero for the cause of Christ. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. May those words from 2 Timothy 4, verses 6-8 through be said of each of us when we are at the time near our own departure. May it be said of us that we fought the good fight, that we finished the race, and that we kept the faith. A part of what that means to do is found in the last book that we'll look at today, and that's the letter from James. James is uh, not the James who is the brother of John. Uh, He was the first apostle killed for the faith in Acts chapter 12. This James is the half-brother of the Lord. Remember Jesus' parents, earthly parents, Joseph and Mary had other children. They're listed in the Gospels that were the natural way, and so they shared the same mother But, of course, uh, Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. That was his heavenly father. And that's a great, great story that we celebrate with the world this coming Sunday on Christmas Day. And I'm so thankful uh, that the world does that. I know that we don't know exactly what day Jesus was born. But I do know that when he was born, heaven and earth together erupted in joy and sang those glories and those hallelujahs. Um, for the coming of the Prince of Peace. Such a wonderful, wonderful thing. I can't imagine people that would discourage that. I can't for a moment. Um, James, this half-brother of the Lord Jesus, uh, would become a leader of the church in Jerusalem. As we saw in Acts, in chapter 15, Paul would go by and visit and mention specifically seeing James. James is one of those that Paul mentions, having specifically seen the resurrected Lord in 1 Corinthians 15. And that's likely the point when James said, I believe. I, I know I doubted all this time and made fun of his brother at times, according to the gospel record. But uh, he became a believer and a very strong leader in the church and now is writing uh, a passage of scripture that is very practical. He talks about pure religion. And uh, Martin Luther didn't like this book very much because it's about doing. And it's specifically about doing good works. But we have to remember that just like Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 3 to command everyone that's that's been saved, that has been baptized into Christ and now raised to live a new life, that that new life is to be devoted to doing what is good. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, Ephesians 2 verse 10 says. And so James writes specifically about that. I think almost all of the New Testament is written For that purpose, to tell Christians how to live and how to be faithful and how to be encouraged in order to do exactly that. And so we read about all of these things, starting in James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And we're thinking, I don't think so. (laughs) That doesn't sound like joy to me. But it's the kind of joy, not, not being happy, uh, not being masochistic about loving suffering, but rather to recognize that there's a, a greater purpose here uh, than just my own comfort uh, at this particular moment. And he says that in James 1 verse 3, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And he goes on and describes how to find that faith even in the midst of persecution. Uh, Skipping down a bit to uh, verse 19, he talks a lot about uh, listening more and talking less. In James 1 verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James, I think, is the New Testament Proverbs. It's witty sayings like that that are very practical, very concrete. And this is one that you've likely heard before, and it's James chapter 1, verse 19. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Wouldn't it be great if people in our churches and in our communities felt did that? Quick to listen, slow to speak. And slow to become angry. Oh, dear God, let it be so. How desperately we need that exact uh, thing. Uh, We keep reading and skip down to verse 22 of chapter 1. We're not even out of James 1, I know. And we're going to go a few more minutes, so hang in there with me. Verse 22 of James 1. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then he gives the illustration of a person who doesn't do what it says, just listens and hears only to somebody who looks into a mirror and doesn't change a thing. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But, verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. What a great way to describe the word of God. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Christianity is not a passive religion. It's an active religion. It's where we are not just not doing the bad things, but we're doing what is good. And that's the theme of the rest of chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Verse 27, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, and our eyes perk up, and our ears open up, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Just like Jesus says the judgment scene in Matthew 25, the separation between the good and the, and the evil, the saved and the lost will be based on, did you, did you help the needy? Did you see me when I was in need? Because if you saw one of these and helped one of these, the least of these, then you were helping me. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Such an important reminder for us today that we must not be polluted by the world. We can live in the world, but we cannot be of the world. We cannot share the world's values today because the world's values are far from the values of God. We see our country slipping more and more into depravity and immorality and distrust and polarization and division. And it's not to be the way with the people of God. We are to look after the needy and care for them no matter what is going on in their lives. Try to help as best we can and keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Uh, Great, great statement. In chapter 2, he uh, speaks about um, uh, not judging others, not uh, being discriminatory based on wealth. And he speaks much about that in chapter 2. And then starting in verse 8, he talks about the royal law. James 2, verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus called the second great commandment, right after love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. That's the royal law. I love the way James describes it as the royal law. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it, just as Paul had told the Galatians. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And that's why obeying laws is not going to save us. We can only be saved through faith by the grace of God and the blood of Christ. And then we seek to live out our lives uh, faithfully serving him. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Verse 12. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2 verse 13. I don't want to be judged based on my deeds. I want to be judged based on mercy. And if we want that for ourselves, just as Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, pray like this, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. If we want to be judged with mercy rather than judgment, then that's how we need to look at our brothers and sisters as well. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then starting in verses 14 and following, he, he has this great, great message about faith and deeds, faith and works. Um, I'll read some of it. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, deeds, works, is dead. Very much like the story of the Good Samaritan where Jesus told them this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself in Luke 10. James, the brother of the Lord, says faith without action, without deeds, without trying to do something to help is a dead faith. And we want a faith that's alive because that's what Jesus had. He came and he acted and he did things to help. He went around doing good, Peter tells Cornelius in Acts 10. Um, Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. James challenges that. He says, look, this is not about one person is gifted with faith and another person is gifted with works or deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. It's always an active faith, a living faith. We're raised to live a new life. And then he gives a couple of examples. He talks about Abraham, and he quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, interesting that Paul does the same thing in Romans 4, talking about faith. James quotes the same verse here, talking about deeds, because they're talking about the same thing. Biblical faith is an active faith. It's a working faith. It's a helping faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Another example he gives is Rahab, the prostitute uh, from Joshua's day. She trusted in God, and she hid those spies and she risked everything by doing that. And um, and because of that, she became a part of the people of God. James 2 verse 26 sums it up as the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. Not just wrong, not just useless. Dead. It's a call to action. And throughout the rest of the book of James, he Give several examples of that, controlling our tongue, watching what we say, make, keeping our pride in check, being people of humility, uh, being careful to observe the Lord's plans in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. That's where we get that passage that says, if it's the Lord's will, I'll do this or that. And the message is simply this. It's not, be sure you say those words, but it's rather, don't leave God out of your plans. We don't know what God's got in store for us but we do the best we can. And so as you make resolutions for 2023, if you choose to do that, you can say, if it's the Lord's will, I'm going to accomplish these things. Um, I'm going to overcome these temptations, whatever that might be. But what we need to remember is that let's include God in our plans. Let's include God in our resolutions, shall we? Um, I think that's a great idea. And then at the end of chapter 5, he speaks about prayer. And he lists several great examples, and he tells us in verse 13 of James 5, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs. Uh, if you're happy, sing. And if you're in a difficult spot, then pray. Just like Paul said in Philippians 4, uh, to let your requests be made known to God, In the peace of God that passes all comprehension and understanding well, guard and keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's what he tells them here. And he gives them a couple of calls. He says, call the elders, call the shepherds of the church, have them pray over you. Um, confess your sins to each other, verse 16 of James 5, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. There are some things we can't overcome on our own. We need to call that faithful, righteous person to pray for us, and perhaps to be an accountability partner, to hold us accountable, to do what we know God is calling us to do. He gives the example of Elijah, who is a man of great prayer, and he talks about what happened in those days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel with the prophet Elijah. Finally, he says in verses 19 and 20, and we'll close with this, we are our brothers and our sisters' keepers. James 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if any of you should wander from the truth, it is possible to wander from the truth. If any one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. My dear friend, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. We are responsible for each other. God has placed us in the community of faith, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. He's done that for a reason, so that we can encourage each other to live lives of faith, lives where faith is not dead, but is seen in the works and the actions and the deeds that we do, devoting ourselves to doing what is good. Again, what we want is at the end of our lives and at the end of the lives of those we love those we come in contact with, everyone possible, that we say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is waiting for me the crown of righteousness, eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is not just for me, but for all who have looked for, longed for, lived for his appearing. I look forward to seeing you on Thursday and... Uh, continuing this great, great study through these final books of the New Testament. God bless.